so I would hear things from from family members like I'm the the least racist person you've ever met or you'll ever meet and that in and of itself is just it's such a problematic statement that like on so many different levels pretty ridiculous this is united states of race personal stories of how our earliest memories determine a lifetime of relationships i'm your host db crema in this week's episode we talk with chris who grew up predominantly among an Hispanic population and came to love the food, the culture, and the strong familial ties that he got invited into. And it cemented his lifelong passion as a chef. But while he focused on the things that bring us together, like celebration of cultural traditions, he saw that many others still focus on hot button political issues like immigration and border walls. Those are issues that fixate not on the humanity that binds us, but rather on the things that tear us apart. And as Chris talks about, some truly believe that the act of championing equality for all is just a way of people trying to keep the white man down. But you know what that is? That's what's been coined the scarcity mentality. The fear that there's a limited amount of resources and that for some to gain or to finally get more, others have to experience a loss. I actually love how Isabel Wilkerson so beautifully writes about this idea in her book, Cast. She says, in a caste system such as race that is upheld by a perception of scarcity, when a lower caste person goes up a rung, an upper caste person must come down. It's this idea that the elevation of others amounts to a demotion of oneself. Thus, fighting for equality feels like a demotion. And it's that reason why people are so reticent to change or to change their viewpoint about privilege and equality. And I don't think that's something that can easily be addressed head on. You know, you benefit from racism or you're perpetuating racist ideas and you must change. No, rather, much like managing and resolving any type of conflict, it comes down to understanding positions and interests. It requires taking the time to understand people's perspectives and their preoccupations. It also requires people to push themselves to focus more on what we hold in common than what divides us. And that is where we can affect change. When did you become aware of race? I guess the first time I can remember race being something of consequence, no surprise has to do with food. Uh, anyone that knows me will know that um, memories for me are highly connected to food um, and culture and identity. Before I, I guess I get into that, uh, a bit of context. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. So we could be close to, to family, um, specifically my paternal grandparents. Um, and their home was on the west side of the city. Um, the west side of San Antonio had and, and still does a very strong Latin presence. Hispanic, uh, traditionally Roman Catholic, 
um, multi-generational families under under one roof. So outside of like the economic demographic, um, you know, where we fell tax bracket wise, uh, outside of having that in common, there were plenty of differences uh, between my family and and the neighbors. But I wasn't really aware of any of that uh, before the age of six. And around this time, my mom was pregnant, and I ended up spending more time with my grandmother at her home. And I would play outside and socialize with the neighbors. I can remember like chasing after loose balls. I can remember learning to play hopscotch and roller skate um, in the driveways, and then. Eventually, I was invited in for for meal times, and I think it was around definitely around a holiday of some sort. I think it was Easter. I walked into a scene uh, of something I, I'd never experienced before. I was invited in into this home. I walked into their lovely kitchen, and the entire family was gathered around this communal long table, and they were all taking part in. Um, this honored tradition uh, of making tamales. Mm. You know, you see young children, you know, sitting on the laps of the next generation, their parents, well, both generations watched the matriarch of the family working. She's spreading the the exact right amount of, of masa, the prepared corn mash onto these soaked corn husks and then filling it with vibrant fillings, uh, chicken and pork and, and chilies, and then precisely wrapping them uh, into like neat little packages for steaming later on. And the first dozen or so were just like a demonstration for anyone who had never seen this before, uh, the young and myself included. And then we would be invited, the newbies would be invited to uh, roll up our sleeves, try our luck and, and kind of earn a spot at the table and I did, and, you know, not a very good job, of course. It's my first time doing anything like that. It was, it was a crazy experience for me, and I think it was mostly just, like, the novelty of it all. But, so what was so new about it? Was it the tamales specifically that you were being introduced to this kind of new food that you didn't know? Or was it a, a scene with family that you were unaccustomed to? Um, before this experience in helping form the tamales, I didn't really know anything of, of the traditions or the family structures within the Hispanic community. I'd never seen any representation of that. And um, they took such pride in who they were, their cultural identities, their traditions. And I, I didn't understand any of that. I think partially because I didn't have a lot of that myself growing up. So this moment in particular, I think, stuck with me just because of this idea of culture really evident uh, in this process that was happening in front of me. And I realized that my own culture, we didn't have anything like that. And then not only did I get my first taste of like family style, family secret tamale recipe, but... Um, I also got to, you know, peek inside a, another culture and their beautiful tradition and be a part of that. That was super special. 
So like naturally after that, I would insist that our family should start making tamales on holidays and special occasions. Uh (laughs) And I would, I would be met with uh, (laughs) a lot of, a lot of comments like, you know, it's actually not that easy. It's a lot of effort. And uh, well, I don't have a recipe for that. And um, this would be much easier if we just bought them from the lady at work who sells them in the parking lot, things like that. Uh, what I didn't understand was that, you know, there was no real link to the act of making tamales uh, for the rest of my family. There's like no real cultural significance, no ties to that act. And at that age, uh, as far as race goes, I only saw the physical and tangible differences between my grandmother's neighbors and, and my family. And that was, you know, the tone of our, the tone of our skins were, were different color. You know, that's pretty much it. That was the extent of my understanding. And I didn't really grasp the larger concepts at play, mm. like culture identity or racial tension or division. And then also at that time, I'd say the overwhelming sentiment, albeit maybe a, a quieter one of the people around me was that Hispanic culture was, was less than. And uh, I guess up until a certain point, for me, it was fairly unrecognizable as racism, which is kind of the way of the world. It was just the way people looked at other people because they were different. I guess a fairly decent example of this would be, again, kind of revolves around food. Um, there are a ton, a ton of, of Mexican food restaurants in, uh, in San Antonio. They're very, very common in the area that I grew up in. There's like literally one on every other corner. And a common phrase uh, for something that ubiquitous that my dad would use is uh, a dime a dozen. So like, you know, there's a dozen of them, they're all worth, you know, 10 cents. And that turn of phrase, I think it very much summarizes the expectations of most white people in the area for their beloved taco shops. The expectation is that they're consistent and cheap. You know, you'd hear comments like, it's also simple. Why are we why are we paying this much for it? And you know, just hearing these comments offhand, it might not seem very harmful, but I don't know. <laughs> over time, I guess, built up over a lifetime, I think as a child, you hear them over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I think that they they show this level of disrespect and subtle degradation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like dilution of uh this beautiful culture this this culture that i that i was shown that i was you know privy to at a young age and how did that make you feel like what did you think about that so before i was able to make fully informed decisions on the ways of the world and uh, how I stacked up to the people around me. Um, I was essentially being fed these subtle lines of you're better than, or rather this 
this other type of person is less than because of X, Y, and Z. And uh, it's harmful. It's, it is. It's, it may not be intended to harm. Um, just those, those little comments, they just add up to something a, a greater a greater threat, I guess. Um, do, do you feel like you absorbed? Like, do you feel like you absorbed that kind of societal norm of, of um, distinctions and on race and culture? So I, I think that, uh, you know, over time you, you do start to absorb um, these, these ideas as um, yeah, you accept them as, as norms as the way society works, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that oh yeah, I'm I'm clearly higher on a on a social scale than than this culture because because it's what I've been been hearing you know so subtly over so many years. I don't know. I can remember times when discussions around um, employment or unemplo- unemployment. Um, they were spurred on by by both of my parents mm-hmm. going back to going back to school and then finishing up their respective programs and their degrees and then re-entering the workforce and i i can just remember conversations like idle chatter amongst you know friends acquaintances and like family members and stuff um, they just bring up the the topic of illegal immigrants and how illegal Im- immigrants were coming across the border and were, you know, quote unquote, taking good paying jobs from honest everyday Texans. You know, I just remember it was a, a raging topic at the time, uh, which is fairly ironic considering uh, my own background um, being the child of an immigrant myself. And if it was happening at all, it was happening in. Uh, difficult, labor-intensive jobs in, you know, in landscaping and hospitality and construction and maintenance and housekeeping and childcare and agriculture, like you name it, you know. Um, Jobs like, that other people didn't want to do. Right, right, exactly. So, like, oftentimes um, these jobs were looked down upon, white people don't want to do them and it creates this this vacuum of employment it it has to be filled it does get filled by anyone who's looking for employment just so happens to be that those people are were at the time hispanic and being looked at being looked down upon as second class citizens because of it it's like doubles down on the idea that hispanic culture is is less than it's very hard to like come to terms with, but what do you think about the idea of reverse racism? Does it, you know, you're talking about uh, your, <laughs> your parents and their, in their uh, scholastic endeavors. And like, you know, to your point, they're kind of, <clears throat> whether they're using the actual term or not, they're saying they're kind of making those claims. Like, yeah. What do you think about the idea of reverse racism? Uh <laughs> What do I think? What do I think? Um, I don't think much about the idea of reverse racism, to be quite honest. When I when I when I hear it, I kind of scoff, and um, I think that 
there are people in my family, uh, maybe not immediate family, who would prescribe to that, you know, well, people are just trying to keep down the white man, um, which is absolutely absurd to me. I don't understand where this idea comes from and how you could be so delusional um, to like believe something like that. I, I just don't, I don't know. Um, why is it an absurd idea? Why is it an absurd idea? I, I think because I think it's an absurd idea <laughs> because we have, we speaking in the plural here for, for other white people have this distinct advantage. Um, you know, I, I feel like being born white. Yeah. I, I, I can't help that I was born white. Um, no less than anyone else can um, help that they were born, uh, whatever race that they were born. But I just, I don't think that there's this, there's this innate force holding me back because my skin is white. Um, the, the way that, the way that history has unfolded, um, at least from my point of view, uh, we've always had the upper hand. We've always had the, the right of way, so to speak. We're always starting not from behind, uh, not with our, you know, our hands tied behind our backs to support the idea of, of otherwise that, that we're being suppressed in some way is absurd. I, I just don't, I don't understand how you could, how you could view the world that way, I guess. But didn't, you, I mean, you didn't say this, and but no. didn't you feel like a minority when you were a kid, you know, spending time in your your grandmother, your grandparents' house in a place where you were the only white person? Like, did that stick out to you? Like, didn't you feel? So uh, the school district that I belonged to, I think, was, don't quote me on this, <laughs> I I believe was 15% to 20% white. And the other, what's the math there? The other 80, 80 to 75% was something other than white. And so, yeah, there were times where I didn't understand why someone black or brown was being called a minority. You know, in my young brain, I said, I'm, the, I'm in the minority here. I, I have a group of 15 friends. Three of them are white. The others have some mix at the very least of something else a diverse cast of of characters so to speak um and that was something to contend with but only i think only for a short while until i realized the actual way of the world in which i'm not part of a minority certainly not um in the power structure uh in society i'm not a part of a minority so my own upbringing being being raised by uh, an immigrant mother, um, I think endeared me to Hispanic culture and challenged me to be more accepting of, of all cultures, um, not just Hispanic culture. And um, I think about the, the long communal table that was present, that the family built their, their tamales around and it conjures the images of 
my very large German family, uh, my mother's side of the family, who who still like to this day, especially on special occasions, uh, comes together for for meal times. And I think about the matriarch of their family and the reverence and like respect that they showed as she, you know, sat amongst everyone and passed along this tradition. And then I think about, well, I think about how that mirrors my, my own grandmothers, both of whom, you know, took me under their wing in their kitchens mm. and said, let me show you how to do this. Let me show you how to do that to try and pass along some sort of cultural identity of my own. And I think my early learnings um, really helps me to understand Mm. and helps me to find um, like these bridges that, that can span the divides between people. Mm -hmm. I was, I was thinking about that. And in particular, something you said about, you know, you didn't have any control over being born white and other people don't have any control over being born, whatever color that they're born. And just made me think like, what if, one of these days, we're no longer born into any race. Well, I think this this may be um, a bit far-fetched, but I think that uh, eventually, if the human species is to survive, there won't be any, any racial differences or divides. It, the human species, in a far-flung reality, um, you know, thousands of years from now, won't be white and black. Um, it won't be different shades of brown. Um, it will be a, a homogenized mixture. Um, and I find that pretty beautiful to think about. Um, kind of hopeful, really. Um, a hopeful thought that we could still maintain our our identities and know where we came from and that the human race is many celebrations of, of, of identity and uh, and, and still, see, this is why I write things down. <clears throat> You're doing great. I almost got there. I almost got there. <laughs> uh, um, I think that there is a time in the far flung future that we will have a human species that exists that not only recognizes its, uh, multicultural backgrounds, um, but will look not of any one particular shade, but a, but a homogenized group of people. I think that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, uh, I get it. When you, when you bring up that question, I, yeah. that's nowhere, nowhere on your list. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't ready for that. But that's what, but that's, that's sincerely what well, I think about. Right. So, I mean, the question, it was a different way of, of asking, you know, what, what would it look like if you could, if you could imagine what the world would look like if we no longer taught race, right? So it's this idea of like, if we were no longer born any race, because just the concept of race. Yeah, I guess I'm, I guess that's taking it a little bit more literally. I think probably because the literal, the literal interpretation of that makes more sense to me because I don't, I don't know that certain sectors of humanity can look beyond the differences. I'm not sure that there will ever be a time when people don't say, look at that person, they're different than I am. I'm going to tell my prodigy that they're different than I am. You know, they're different than we are. 
you know, it's a very hopeful uh, thought, but hopefully you can celebrate those differences and not um, focus on, you know, being different. We all still have some form of humanity. We all still, you know, gather on a table to eat food um, together. That we all we all have respect and reverence for our elders. Um, that we all, you know, we all love and and laugh and you know experience emotions in the same way. And that's a hopeful thought that people could look past race and not teach it to their children. Thanks for listening to United States of Race. This podcast was produced by me, D.B. Crema. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a one-minute voice memo with any reactions, questions, or stories you'd like to share. You can use the app on your phone to record the voice memo and email it to unitedstatesofrace at gmail.com. That's unitedstatesofrace at gmail.com. It might even be included in an upcoming episode. And be sure to hit follow or subscribe on whichever podcast platform you're listening. That way, you won't miss a single moment. Until next time.